the growing hostility of the Jews has driven Jesus east across the Jordan to safety. So there's uh, the Jordan River, which runs basically north-south through the Promised Land. And Jerusalem is on the the west, uh, toward the south, on the west of the Jordan River. And Jesus has gone across the Jordan River to the east for safety as the hostility of the Jews has grown. We saw at the end of John chapter 10 that they were trying to kill Jesus and then he debates with them and then they were trying to arrest him. So Jesus has left Jerusalem. He's left Judea. He's gone across to the east side of the River Jordan. However, at the beginning of chapter 11 here, a message reaches him which will draw him back to within a dangerous proximity to Jerusalem. Bethany described to us in verse 1 as the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And the story goes on to tell us that Lazarus was their brother, so the, the village of Lazarus too, was, as verse 18 says, about two miles off Jerusalem. So Bethany is only about two miles or three kilometers from Jerusalem. Easily walkable in half an hour or so. Definitely under an hour, even if you're a slow walker. It's about the distance from here to Shaphat Wildi. That's how close we are to Jerusalem. And so if people want to kill you, and if people are looking to arrest you, it's not really putting a ton of distance between yourself and them to be in Bethany, outside Jerusalem. So we'll look at this theme of the danger and the proximity more next week. But it's this proximity to Jerusalem which prompts the disciples' objections to returning, which we read about in verses 7 to 16. Today, however, we're only focusing on the first six verses of John 11, where we read of Mary and Martha sending a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. What follows after the objections of the disciples and Jesus returned to Bethany, what follows is a powerful story of hope in the absence of hope. Resurrection in the face of death. And as this is the last work or action that John presents to us before Jesus goes to the cross, we are undoubtedly meant to see a culmination or a crescendo of Jesus' works here in John chapter 11 in the raising of Lazarus. Everything that happens after this until we get to the cross is just teaching. This is the last of Jesus' actions or works before he gets to the cross. So no longer is Jesus merely turning water into wine or healing invalids or feeding multitudes. His works reach their apex here in John chapter 11 in the resurrection of a man four days dead. The story is too rich to take in all at once. Originally, I had been thinking, well, it's one narrative, so I'll preach one message on John chapter 11. But as I started studying, I said, no, (laughs) we have to slow down. So we'll break it down and we'll focus on only the first six verses here today, which introduce to us this narrative. And the first thing that we should note is the identity of Mary. John makes a point to tell us in verse 2. That it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. 
So apparently then it was Mary whom we have all read about in Matthew 26, 6 to 13, Mark 14, 3 to 9, and Luke 7, 36 to 39. Let's just turn to each of those and I'm going to read them without comment uh, each in turn and then I'll make a few observations afterward. Matthew 26, 6 to 13. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Mark 14, 3-9 And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii I had given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then Luke seven, thirty-six to 39. One of the Pharisees asked, him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, verse 40, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, all of those are the same incident. So we have this man named Simon, who is a Pharisee, according to Luke 7. He's also a leper, according to Matthew and Mark, which doesn't necessarily mean leprosy proper. Uh, It was a term that was generically used for various skin diseases. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he had to be isolated and so on and so forth. So there was a man named Simon, who was a Pharisee, who had some skin problems. And Uh, this situation that's described in Matthew and Mark leaves out the exchange about her being a sinner 
and a woman of the city and so on and so forth. And it focuses on other aspects, but Luke ties this in. So it's, it's impossible to see these as separate incidents. It's in the house of a guy named Simon. It's the exact same event that happens. It's all the same. So what this means is that Mary is the one who in Luke chapter 7 is the sort of woman that no respectable Jew would ever allow to touch it. It was Mary who is a woman of the city, a sinner. And I think that it's still impossible to say for certain what the nature of her sin was. We can't say with 100% certainty, but there's a fairly good chance that it was probably something like sexual immorality or prostitution. Even the phrase that's used, the woman of the city, and the way that she's described, not just being a a person of uh, unsavory character, but what sort of woman this is who is touching him. In other words, there seems to be sort of this insinuation that she's a dirty woman, right? Which lends itself then in our minds to thinking that it's probably sexual immorality, if not prostitution. So she's at least a loose woman, uh, possibly even a prostitute. Um, Even if we say, though, for the sake of argument, well, you can't say that for sure. Okay, fine, but she has a very bad reputation at least. And she has such a bad reputation that you wouldn't even want her touching you. So whatever that means. Okay? Now, secondly, when this dinner is given, uh, in which Jesus is anointed by Mary, which occurs in... As I said, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 7. It occurs in John in chapter 12, which is after our narrative today. This event is not at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, which is interesting. It's in Bethany. Jesus has already raised Lazarus, and yet... It's not at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Why not? Now, here's a slight bit of conjecture, admittedly. Uh, The same way that it's a little bit of conjecture to say that she was probably sexually immoral, possibly a prostitute. It's a little bit of conjecture, but it's not unreasonable to hypothesize. I think that this is more plausible than any other explanation. I surmise that Lazarus and his sisters simply didn't have the space to host a dinner for Jesus. That their house was not suitable for that function. Evidently, they were enthusiastic to be involved, and therefore they would have been eager to host if they could have. We see that even though this is at Simon's house, according to the other three Gospels, Martha served. Lazarus was there reclining at table. And of course, Mary comes and anoints Jesus. And so each of them are very involved. They're very eager to be there. There's no reluctance on their part. It's not as if the story just moves on past Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It makes a point to mention that they were all there and they were all involved in this. So why wouldn't this dinner be in the home of this family if indeed they could have hosted I suspect that it's simply because they couldn't have hosted. And so they're in the home of a wealthy Pharisee 
instead named Simon, who was of means and had the space to host a dinner for Jesus. So, here we have some degree of uncertainty, but I think enough certainty about some things to put together the situation as follows. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were common folk. They were just ordinary people. They weren't wealthy Pharisees who could host dinner parties at their house. They weren't the who's who. We don't know for certain, but there's a fairly good chance that their home was somewhat dysfunctional. If Mary was the sort of woman who had such a reputation that no respectable Jew even wanted to touch her, sociologically, statistically, the probability is that there was some dysfunction in the home. Very often this is the case with women of the city. Not saying that it's always the case in every situation. So as I acknowledge, there's some degree of uncertainty about the exact situation of these folks. But chances are, these are relatively low-income uh, siblings, grown now, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, living together. For whatever reason, Lazarus hasn't uh, struck out on his own to establish his own family. So here they are, possibly sharing the rent with the proceeds of whatever sort of work they're doing, including Mary's, as a woman of the city. This is the sort of household that we have. Again, there's some degree of conjecture, right? So I'm not staking the whole theological claim that I'm about to make to you on all of the precise details of it. But I do want you to know that it was this woman with a bad reputation, for sure, who was Mary. And I do want you to know that the dinner that was given for Jesus wasn't at their house. And I think the most reasonable explanation for that is simply that they couldn't have hosted. So we at least, whatever else we might hypothesize or hesitate to hypothesize, we at least have a family of fairly modest means, of which the sister was a woman of very poor reputation before she was saved by the Lord Jesus Christ from her sins and turned away from her sin toward Christ Jesus. We certainly have that, at least. So, what we see then is that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were common folk. I think that that's beyond dispute. There's no indication in any of the Gospels that they are people of note. All that's in dispute is just the level of detail or how many hypotheses we're comfortable making about just how, exactly how their situation was. But Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were common folk, common people. They were your friends. They were your neighbors. They were you. They were me. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were just normal people, the common man. The next thing that we should see in this passage is the genuine love and affection of Jesus for these people. 
look back at the first six verses of John 11, we should know that twice it is emphasized that Jesus loved Lazarus. The sisters send a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then again in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Twice it's emphasized that Jesus loves this man who was a common guy without means, without a lot of influence, without significance, who was the brother of a woman of very poor reputation. And it's not only Lazarus that he loves, but also his sisters. And of course the way that it's put over to us is not that this is any kind of romantic love, but this is, this is just the genuine love of friendship. And so the, the love that Jesus has for Mary is the same love that he has for Martha and for Lazarus. This is a non-romantic, a non-sexual love. This is just a love of genuine care and friendship for these people or with these people. We should note that Jesus loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We should know also Jesus' affection for Lazarus and his sisters. And let me explain what I mean when I distinguish between love and affection. You ever heard uh, someone say that uh, they're pretty sure their spouse loves them, but they're not sure if their spouse likes them? This is the difference between love and affection. There's an old George Strait country song. I know she still loves me, but I don't think she likes me anymore. And this is, this is what I mean, the difference between love and affection. You can have a commitment to someone's well-being and seek to serve them and help them. And you're loyal to them. And you're not going to give up and you're not going to quit and so on and so forth. And you have the integrity to stick it out and all of this sort of thing. But you don't really feel like being there. You don't really feel like doing it. This is the difference. This is the distinction that I'm making between love and affection. We see that not only does Jesus have love for Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but Jesus has affection for them. As the story goes on, we read of Martha coming to meet Jesus. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Are these cold words of someone who is merely objectively concerned for you the way that maybe like when I go to see my doctor, you know, he, in a sense, he loves me, but he doesn't have any affection for me, right? He loves me in the sense of he doesn't do evil to me, rather he does good to me. He's committed to my well-being and so on and so forth. And in that sense, he does love to me, right? 
that he acts lovingly towards me. He tends to my injuries and my wounds and my ailments and so on and so forth. But he feels no affection for me. Are these the words? Is this the manner of interacting of a mere doctor? Or is this someone that cares for Martha? Even the way he says it, your brother will rise again. He doesn't even just say Lazarus will rise again, but he's attuning himself to the concern of her heart. Lord, if you were here, my brother would not not have died. And he says, your brother will rise again. He's speaking words of warmth. And in case there's any question about it, we just read on and see how he interacts by the time Mary comes. Verse 32, she falls at Jesus' feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why did she not go on to say the rest? We'll talk about that in weeks to come. One possibility, at least, is just that she couldn't get through the emotion of it. Have you ever tried to get out a full sentence when you're crying? Sometimes it's tough. Mary comes weeping, we're told. Perhaps all she can say is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she chokes up. And what we see here in verse 35 is that Jesus does too. When Jesus saw her weeping, 33 tells us, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and greatly troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. We see here the great affection that Jesus has for these people. He enters right in to their suffering. He wants to be there. Weeping with Mary and with Martha. He is moved by the death of his friend, Lazarus. Now, in keeping with our studies on the Godhead over the last couple of weeks, we should know that... Orthodoxy posits that God is without passions. Our confession says that God is without parts or passions. This is not only according to our confession of faith, but it's also a necessary consequence of Scripture. Let me explain this. Jesus, in His human nature, was moved, our translation says in verse 33. Jesus, in his human nature, was, the word is, moved, according to verse 33. God cannot be moved. God is not passively affected by anything. This is the meaning of God being without passions. Can, I, can everybody hear me in the back with all the rain? Are we okay? Alright. If you can't hear, feel free to move up. God cannot be moved. God is not passively affected by anything. No one bumps God out of the way. Nothing overcomes God. We say, I was overcome by emotion. God never says such a thing because God never is overcome by emotion. This is the meaning of God being without passions. But 
this, because this is very crucial. And this is why I wanted to make sure you could hear me. This does not mean that God could not care less. This means that God could not care more. God's care does not ebb and flow the way that our care ebbs and flows. There is no out of sight, out of mind for God. There is no time heals all wounds for God. Let me explain this. If I were to move to another country, inevitably, inevitably, my affections for all of you would wane somewhat. That's already happened with persons that I left behind in Canada. And it's no slight to them, and it would be no slight to you. The reality is, is that I don't just cumulatively add people to my life for whom I feel equally strong for the rest of my life. And that's a limit of my humanness. I don't feel the same affection for my friends that I had back in my school days as I did then. Things change and our affections cool and our affections heat up. Our affections ebb and our affections flow. And there is a sense for us where it is out of sight, out of mind. When you get further away from someone in proximity, inevitably your affections cool over time. When we say time heals all wounds, what typically we mean by that, if we were to be literal and specific, is that it won't hurt so bad later because you'll kind of start to forget about it. And the less that you think about it, and the less raw that it is, then the less it's going to hurt. We don't mean that you really were healed, we just mean that you just kind of start to forget about it. And you, you don't feel the same strong affection that you felt when it first happened. Listen to this. God feels, if you will, just as strongly about something or someone when it's on the other side of the world as he does when it's right here. God feels, if you will, just as strongly about something that happened a thousand years ago today as he did then. And something that will happen tomorrow today as he will then. God is immutable which means unchanging. And therefore, that is why we predicate that God is without passions. God is not affected by distance. God is not affected by time. God is not affected by space. God is not affected by other considerations. God is not affected by distractions. And so on and so forth. God's mood doesn't change. So when we say that God is without passions, we don't mean that He is an unfeeling stone in the sky who doesn't care about His people. When we say that God is without passions, we don't mean that God couldn't care less. 
we actually mean that God, there's never been an instance where God could care more. That God's care for us is infinitely better than we could care one for another. So we are not saying, when we say that Christ in his human nature has affections and passions, we are not saying that Christ in his human nature cares more in his human nature than he does in his divine nature. What we are saying when we say that in his human nature he has affection for Lazarus and in his divine nature he doesn't, what we are saying is that the human affections of Jesus reveal in a human way which ebbs and flows that which is ever true of the Lord Jesus Christ and His divinity concerning His affections and care for Lazarus. In other words, Jesus in the Incarnation in a human way reveals here in John chapter 11 that which is always and ever true of the divine Son of God toward Lazarus. Without ebb, without flow, unaffected by time and distance and space and distraction, Lazarus has been loved with an everlasting love by God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost. And when Jesus takes on flesh and dwells among us, and goes to Lazarus' tomb and sees Mary weeping and sees the others weeping and he himself is overcome. He himself is moved in his human nature such that he weeps. We ought not to see there a human who cares more than God. We ought rather to see a, a manifestation in a human way of the care and the love which the Son of God in His divinity has always had and always will have for this Lazarus. So we've seen the identity of Mary and her siblings. And we've seen the genuine love and affection of the Lord Jesus for these people. The last thing that we should note is this. What real love looks like, what real affection leads to in its terminus, or in other words, what's its end goal? The love and affection of Christ Jesus for Mary, for Martha, for Lazarus, led to, or the technical languages, terminated in, like the last stop on the bus route, the love and affection of Christ Jesus for these siblings, Martha and her sister and Lazarus, led to, or terminated in, Jesus revealing His glory to them. This is what Jesus did for the ones He loved. This is what Jesus did for the ones that He cared about. I want you to look again at the early verses of John chapter 11. 
The sisters said to him, this is in verse 3, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Skip 4 and 5 so you can see the connection. Look at verse 6. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Now, isn't that a strange conjunction? Lord, he whom you love is ill. What does it say? Not but. We would expect a but. But, when Jesus heard this, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. No, it doesn't say that. It says, so. In other words, he heard that Lazarus was ill. And then it says, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, because he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, verse 5 tells us, Therefore, because he loved them and heard that Lazarus was ill, therefore he stayed two days longer where he was. That doesn't make any sense to us, does it? It's a really strange way of framing Jesus' action. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, because he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, therefore, so, he stayed put. And didn't do anything. <clears throat> Verse 4 is the explanation. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. <clears throat> Obviously, Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die. So he didn't mean it in that sense. He just meant that the end result of this whole situation isn't that Lazarus is going to be in the grave. Death is not going to have the last word here. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through. What Jesus does, he's confronted with this situation where he can do something for the ones he loves. Is it true that what Mary and Martha both said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died? Is that true? Certainly. So Jesus has a choice to make. He can go, and if he's there, Lazarus won't die. But remember, these are people that Jesus really loves. And these are people that Jesus has a great deal of affection for. So, he decides not to go and to let Lazarus die. You see what's happening? Jesus is choosing something better for Martha and her sister and Lazarus than simply going and preserving Lazarus' life. The love and affection of Christ Jesus for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus led to him revealing his glory to them via resurrection. We see this idea repeated again in verse 14. Jesus tells the disciples plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. For your sake, 
it was good that Lazarus died and that you're about to see what you're going to see so that you may believe. In other words, what Jesus is doing is being benevolent to Martha and to Mary and to Lazarus and to the disciples and to everybody who's going to be standing around witnessing this miracle. Jesus came into this world to manifest His glory as the Savior, which is not less than being the Resurrector. Because what kind of Savior can't resurrect us? What did He save us from? If anything, just some... If He couldn't be the Resurrector, at most He could just be the Deliverer from some temporal difficulties. But we're all still going to be in the grave. Where you see Jesus shows us here that part and parcel of His saving work is resurrection power. And He wants us to know it. And He wants us to believe. And He wants us to see His glory as the incarnate Son of God who is able to call the dead from the tomb. The glory of God's Son is not revealed primarily by the construction of grand cathedrals or by hat tips from kings and other noteworthy persons. Remember that this is the climax and the crescendo of the works that Jesus did that John puts forward to us. John wants us to see the apex of the revelation of Jesus' glory as our Savior in resurrection power and the resurrection of the common man. Remember, when John brings this whole thing to a climax before he leaves off talking about Jesus' works and Jesus' actions and just focuses on his teaching leading up to the cross, when John brings everything to a crescendo, he tells us a story about how Jesus loves and cares for ordinary people and raises them from the dead. And this is how Mary and Martha are going to see Jesus' glory. This is how the disciples are going to see and believe. This is how we who read, remember the whole purpose of John? These things are written so that you may believe. This is how we are to interpret the glory of the Son of God. In the love and affection for and resurrection of the common man. This culmination, this crescendo, is not Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a war horse, nor is it even riding in on a humble donkey. For John, the climax, the crescendo, is Jesus weeping with those who weep, looking at death, feeling in his human nature the pain, the wrenching pain of death, as his friend is in the tomb, and then doing something about it, calling Lazarus forth. The glory of God's Son is revealed primarily in his love and affection for and his resurrection of the common man. This is the way that this story is set up. These are the sorts of characters involved. This is sort of the broad 
the broad strokes of the story, the broad strokes of the theme. The gospel hope for us is very centrally and very ultimately that Jesus will love us and raise us from the grave. It's not really rocket science. It's not really complex. There are all kinds of things in the Christian religion that are difficult to understand. And we have our theological discussions and debates and so on and so forth. And it's important to love God with our minds. But at the end of the day, we're just hoping that Jesus is going to love us and raise us from the grave. That Jesus is going to have affection for a common man like me, or a common man like you, or a common woman like you, or a child like you. That Jesus is going to be willing to pay attention to people like us who are really nobodies in the grand scheme of things. That Jesus could be friends with us, as it were, and do something for us like what he did for Lazarus. This is really central to our hope and is ultimately our hope. This story is going to teach us more than this and there's lots that we're going to unpack in the next few weeks. But I want you to see Jesus, the friend of the ordinary household down the street. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I want you to see Jesus as one who not only has love, but also affection for these ordinary people. And in his human nature manifests that which is unwaveringly true of the Son of God in his divine nature, this care for these ordinary folks. And then I want you to believe this story is meant for us to believe that if Jesus loved and had affection for normal people like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and that Jesus was willing to do something about their plight and enter into that and grieve with them and then overcome death on their behalf, this story is written that you might believe that he would do it for you. Let's sing in response, Jesus, friend of sinners, his forever, number 156 in hymns of grace.